Yeah. Hello, whoever you are. Do not tamper with my enchantment. Holy shit, it's James Earl Jones. Shut up. Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives for episode two, Lost, Found, Fucked. Written by John McNamara and directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb is giving this an 8.9. The synopsis says, Dean Fogg gets a new suit. Cleverly sparse, but also revealing to us this would be the Dean Fogg episode, and indeed it was. So who's lost? The whole crew? For the most part, yes. I would say even other characters, including Dean Fogg and Alice, are all lost. I'd even say including Elliot Monster is lost. Oh, certainly. He's on his own journey. (laughs) Can't wait to talk about him. And who's found? Well, all of our crew is found by the end, once the spell is reversed and their identities are revealed. And who's fucked? Thus making them all fucked. Exactly. And my major source of frustration for the episode, but we will talk about that. Overall, I actually thought this was an excellent episode. I liked it even better than the season premiere. Me too. And I'm having difficulties because I was trying to be an adult this season and be like, okay, don't be over anxious with your grading. Last year, you made the mistake of grading it so high, you couldn't go any higher. And now I'm still finding myself going, all right, episode two, I got to go even higher. Episode three, I'm going to go even higher. (laughs) Episode four. What I loved most of all about this episode was the pace it was moving at. We had hoped and conjectured that our crew would not remain glamored for very long, that the magicians would understand part of what we love so much is our characters and their true personalities. And so this would be reversed fairly quickly. While the ramifications of that suck, I love that we have everyone back. I love that we're getting some answers, and we didn't think we would get to see a lot of the Elliot monster until a ways into this season. I was hoping they would tease us some more. We got a bit more this time, enough to prompt some wild speculation. Well, first of all, I love the fact that you used the word ramifications, because that was the title (laughs) of one of the episodes in The Magicians. But also, you're right, I really thought that they would just continue to tease the Elliot monster and Q storyline until we progressed further with the rest of the crew. But then I got to remember, it's the magicians. They move it. They're like, let's move it along. Move it along. We got so much to tell you. Not only that, they cover mostly everyone in the first two episodes. Den of Geek put it so well. They said, no show does disconnected storylines like the magicians. Despite the fact that the episode had to tell the stories of Margot and Fillory, Alice in the library, Fogg and Julia at Breakbills, and Elliot and Quentin in Greece, each are tied together by the eventual removal of the student's false identity. Although some plot lines are still works in progress with no real resolution, the forward progress that was made in each case was effective and appreciated. Now, we've talked before, and I'm sure we'll discuss again. There are a few loose ends we have yet to come back around to. I didn't really expect it in the first two episodes. But some characters I was hoping, thinking we might see... I know everyone's talking about what's going on with Penny Forty and Hades in the underworld. Yeah, we had a clatcher right into us saying, I'm surprised you didn't bring up Penny and tell us what happened to him after he ate that cupcake. Now, we did touch upon it in the season finale last year. But just to remind you, what we've learned in all Greek mythology is that if you eat something in the underworld, it cements you there. A la Persephone and her pomegranate seeds. 
So once he ate that cupcake, I think it was the second to last episode. Something like that. And we didn't see him again. It was more about Penny 23. Now, we discussed this and I was more along the lines of we might not see this Penny this season. But you think otherwise. You think it might be a good opportunity where this Penny will do something to help them in the underworld. Yeah, with so much going on with the library and we're getting frequent glimpses at what's happening with Alice... And the reintroduction of the Greek pantheon, which I think is going to be more and more important this season. I love that about this show. You would think they would want to take the opportunity to show us what's going on with Hades, another god we've gotten introduced to. And I mean, let's be serious. Everybody loves Penny 40, right? So we want to know what's happening with him. Instead, they at times choose to bring in other characters. I know everybody was so excited to see Marina last time. And I'm happy she's here, but I was suspect of her from the beginning, even though she is Marina 23. Marina is always up to something, and she started revealing her true colors more in this episode with those snarky little comments. Yeah, I'm a good white witch. Yeah, I started to realize the minute we started seeing the previously on, and then as the episode progressed, I was like, man, I am so easy. Because if you remember last episode during the podcast, I think I was leaning very heavily towards this one being a good witch, Mm -hmm. a white witch. But it's looking more and more so that she wasn't doing this to help the crew. She was doing this to help herself. To what end? We don't know yet. Um, But it did remind me of the fact, and I was like, duh, we saw Katie, aka Sam, in episode one, going into a trailer and one of Marina's peeps try to do magic against her to hurt her. Obviously, there is a reason why they're doing this. And Marina sent him. We know that. I don't know if she's bad necessarily. I don't think that's the case. But it is always the issue with Marina that there are selfish reasons coming into play. Mm-hmm. And that often causes trouble for our magicians. I had even wondered if she was stealing her magic or getting it in a not so great way from the McAllisters. I wonder if that's going to be the tie-in. I still don't quite want to believe that's true. But the father issues she has that she's obviously working out with Dean Fogg. And there must be way more to that going on. Could prompt some dark shifts in this direction. I hope that they do at least tie that in more to the rest of our characters and storylines if we keep getting her because another podcast mentioned and I agreed they often seem to pull in Marina into random places when they need another character and maybe she doesn't fit so seamlessly into the storyline since her exit from Marina 40 that is. For sure hedge witches are not really bad quote unquote they're more in the gray area. When I say bad, I mean, you know, you're not on our team. We're team break bills. Yeah, but Marina herself did do some bad things in the past, too. We could understand. So was Katie. Yeah, we could (laughs) even empathize with her at times. It's probably not what our group needs right now when they're in dire circumstances. You know who else we're missing? Poppy. We haven't seen her come up. Now, we know we've talked about Harriet is still in that mirror zone. But I'm talking about magicians that were around before the reboot. We discussed that in the instant cast just briefly about how Poppy left Harriet and I think Victoria in the mirror bridge and we didn't see her after that. She was also a character who seemed to be sort of up to her own selfish things. (laughs) I thought it might be a while before we come back to them, even though it kind of has been a while. Accepting those people, though, they do a really excellent job at covering all of our main characters, the big issues we were looking to see other than Penny 40 to start off this season and get us excited. Yes, and just to briefly go back to Penny, just to put a button on that, 
the one thing with our discussion, when you were saying he'll probably come back into play, the one thing I have rolling around constantly in my head is that they're not going to allow two pennies to coexist for a long period of time. It's not going to be like penny 40 comes back and now we always, always have two pennies. I think that's too confusing to have that be a staple in the next seasons. So if we ever do get penny 40 back for a long period of time, not just every so often coming back, we're going to lose penny 23. I think eventually that could be what happens because I think there's going to be issues with Penny 23. Namely, the fact that his driving force was his previous relationship with Julia that he had in that timeline and their soulmates. Now that he's got his memory back, I think he's going to be kind of off to the races again. I just foresee problems with that. We discussed this at the time when it happened, and I'm thinking that it will hold true eventually that while these characters seem to be here and doing fine... There's something fate-wise, destiny-wise, that characters from other timelines will not last forever in this timeline. Mm. I I feel like that's sort of destined that it's not going to work out for them. Well, it's not going to work out for this, Penny, because we all know Julia is in love with me. Okay. That explains it. Well, the one other thing, obviously, I loved from this episode was the deeper dive. Are you talking about Lord Fresh when you say deeper dive? (laughs) No, but I can't wait to talk about him. The show does a really good job of building up our characters, exploring what's underneath their motivations, their gray areas, how they interact with each other, how they search for their identity and their purpose. One person we always wanted to know more about, though, and didn't get was Dean Fogg. And with us being so frustrated with him as of late, often in The Magicians, but definitely since the end of last season, they must have known it's important for us to see more about what's going on with him, to get where he's coming from. And I think this episode did a brilliant job of that. I know that you, Jason, were extremely angry with Dean Fogg (laughs) at the end of last season. Then you managed to let it go and it was more me holding on to it into last episode, saying I'm still frustrated with him. It seems like he knows what's coming and maybe there's nothing more he can do, but I want to believe there is. Tell me more. Now I'm back to kind of getting it. Well, yeah, I didn't necessarily forgive him for the end of season three. I was just more aware of this season would probably be his repentant season. Um, And I was very curious and excited to, one, get more Dean Fogg, because that was always my complaint. And two, find out why he did this so uncharacteristically and find out how he's going to help the crew. And I say this with a grain of salt, help the crew overtake the library. Now, when I say help the crew, what I mean by that is we've often complained that Dean Fogg was there to help, even in season one, with the reboots of the storylines, every time to try to get the crew to beat the beast. He's not really there helping. And that's what we were talking about last episode when we said it's kind of like Dumbledore-esque. Yeah, we meant in certain ways. Obviously, he's not a direct parallel. There's a lot different. We are extreme Harry Potter fans and extreme Dumbledore fans, but the similarities we often point out are him being a flawed human character. Despite the fact that he's a mentor, he has a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. He's also a person with issues of his own. And while it might seem like he's not doing enough at times, just like we would get so frustrated, where is Dumbledore when Harry needs him? This is ridiculous. Dean Fogg is doing stuff behind the scenes that we're not always privy to. So we had a Clatcher John who reached out to us who seemed pretty angry that we would compare Dean Fogg to Sir Dumbledore. (laughs) And I understand because we're huge fans as well. We were not saying that Dumbledore would do something as asinine as Dean Fogg did in the end of last season. Well, it's also a different world. (laughs) True. 
Either way, this seems like the perfect time to do our deeper dive on Dean Fogg, and thus he will be our character review for this episode. We'll be getting back to him later on. Well, that's all the good stuff I don't want to dwell. I just want to bring up briefly, there were a couple of negatives for me. And it wasn't about overall episode structure. It was a few brief plot things that I couldn't understand that just frustrated me. Things like Dean Fogg is doing all of this so carefully the way he set it up, putting the spells out there. He's gone to the trouble with his battery to make sure it keeps being powered. And then he even has an alarm that's triggered should you try to access it reveal the glamours, find out who they are, break his spells. And yet it comes up in an automated message that has Dean Fogg's voice. If you know him, you're going to know that's Dean Fogg. And somebody like Marina is going to put two and two together. She knows enough about this group that give her another hour. It doesn't matter that they're glamoured. She's going to know exactly who they are. Thus perhaps giving away the identity for the crew for anybody who knows enough to be able to track that down. I see what you're saying. So he probably should have used a different voice. Yeah. Why would he use his own voice? (laughs) Hmm. Well, I see. I didn't read into it that far. One, I thought it was worth it for that fantastic James Earl Jones joke, because you know, I'm obsessed with his voice. But two, if they're de-glamoring them, they already know pretty much what's going on. No? No. Somebody like the monster, had he not gotten the information, is after them just to get to them. He doesn't necessarily know their identities ahead of time. But the other thing was about Julia's actions. And again, I hesitate here. I know it's so tricky. Everyone is just going to jump on me when I say anything about Julia. I can't help it, though. People were so excited when she overloaded that battery and was able to remove the spell to give our magicians their identities back. All I could think is, I can't believe she just did this. How is she not thinking about the consequences of what that's going to do? Sure, it's great for them to know who they are and have a little bit of personal power back, but the whole reason that's in place is it is way, way more dangerous for them and for others to know. And Dean Fogg actually warned her about that. He warned her twice, and he didn't skate around it. He said blatantly. If I reveal that the spell can be reversed, then someone would reverse the spell on my students, ensuring their deaths. But please, be more careful now than you've ever been in your life. Well, lives. You gotta listen to him at that point, no? Plus, this is not our Julia, who has an emotional connection to these characters and is saying internally, well, this isn't right, and, and they need to be able to fight for themselves, we got to go forward and do this, then I do believe for Kim, a part of that was a little bit selfish because she was really struggling with her own identity and who she was. She didn't believe she belonged here. Things were being kept from her. She needed to understand the truth as well and not thinking five steps further to what Dean was trying to show her. You have to be more cautious now than ever, ever before. You are a smart woman. Please understand this. Revealing their identity will kill them. And she did it anyways. I see what you're saying. While watching the episode, I didn't get that much of an emotional reaction to it, only for selfish reasons. Because I am so glad that, okay, Dean Fogg is Dean Fogg again. All right, good. We don't have to go like six episodes with Dean Fogg not being around and not being himself. For plot reasons. And very often, that's the reason we have to do things. I just wonder, could there have been another way where we don't have to sacrifice a little bit of 
Julianess to get that done. And maybe it makes sense that she's not totally Julia right now. So we don't have to blame her. We can blame Kimber. But it does hold true what Dean Fogg says to her in his office. You will be the one who will have the power to help them. No one else could have overloaded that battery. They, I mean, she had to die, what, like 40 times? Everyone else would have died the first time and that would have been it. I guess maybe because she'd have done a little more planning as to how she was going to find them, get to them, figure it out before just bringing down the only protection they have. There was absolutely no thinking in it. It was just kind of reaction. Just go with it. And that's not really typically her. No, that's reminiscent of the way Alice was acting Mm -hmm. in the last episode last season. Yeah. So we know that that's one thing that the writers do if they need to move the plot forward is... Just have a character be uncharacteristic and do something stupid. But they can get away with it a little more with this one because she is uncharacteristic. It's not her. (laughs) It's not her. Exactly. My other thought, and it was a passive thought, no big deal. But if you have the only perpetual battery that's controlling something so important, and that's the only thing that the library doesn't have power over, are you going to put it in a classroom? Just in a cabinet? And then are you going to make mention of it to somebody like Todd or or enable him to figure out that this is your life's work? Because you know he's going to go after it at that point. So sorry, we had to bring those things up. I, I think they're... They're silly negatives. They're, like, they're it's not silly, a big deal. Well, they're sources of aggravation I know other people have been feeling, so we have to talk about it. The rest of the episode we really enjoyed and we can't wait to get into it. Let's start off with our new faces and places. We met who we thought was going to be, and Eulaeus, a new god played by Daniel Cudmore. In Greek mythology, he's a little confusing, generally regarded as a son of Ares. Sometimes they talk about him as just being another name for Ares, not an entirely different person. But by later on in history, he was regarded as a separate entity, a son of Ares by Enyo. Sometimes they say he was the son of Kronos and Rhea himself. Either way, he was looked at as god of soldiers and warriors. Now, based on Elliot Monster, if you say that Ares is the god of war, Enyaleus is going to be pissed. So is he more of the god of war? No, he's his son. He's under him, but I guess maybe he doesn't like being reminded of that. I don't want to be in my dad's shadow, man. (laughs) And this is not, in fact, Enyaleus anyway. Now, real quick, and we're going to divulge this later on in this episode, but right after the episode ended, Wednesday night, Christina and I started uh, doing what we do, which is like talking about what we just went through and the journey we were going through and we came up with an idea of who we think the Elliot monster is who this god is and why the main gods could be scared of him and we put it up right away on twitter as a way for us to deter anyone thinking that maybe we heard this from someone else we put it up right away and we even put at john mcnamara and at sarah gamble they didn't write back to us they always ignore us. I don't. I, they don't like us. <laughs> they I don't, don't like us. <laughs> so we will. I, I'm excited to talk about that. We might be really off, but it's fun anyways. There are so many pieces that fit. Of course, we have a couple of disconnected ideas and some things that maybe are far fetched. But this central theory and hypothesis, I want it to be true now. Anyhow, coming back to Anulaeus, we find out it's not him, but rather his servant, a Corbett. Don't get to hear much about this guy, unfortunately, because he winds up dying. The other major new player was Lord Fresh. He's the character that we spoke about last episode that we thought would be a bad guy. That's the thing about the magicians. Even if they look bad, sometimes they're good. He is certainly creepy looking. So is his domain. So well done. He's played by Anthony Ingram. This character is Lord of all Florian Freshwater, but apparently has an even bigger job as well. 
That's protecting the introduction of a new magical item, the birthright box that belongs to Margot. Also, perhaps some ideas on what the birthright box could be. That's really confusing and mysterious. I love it. Well, I saw three keyholes and I was like, oh shit, keys. More keys. Yeah. Let's bring them back. (laughs) And of course, we saw the perpetual battery. It seems a bunch of good magicians had planned for the day or the eventuality where we might not have magic. We've talked a lot about Mayakovsky, still yet to see where he's at with, we think, maybe some more batteries of his own. This battery, though, had a very specific purpose. It had a decent amount of magic inside of it because we learned that it does take a lot of magic to keep up with this spell that he's been running. And it was protected inside of there so that it could go on as long as Dean Fogg needed it to. Yeah, perpetual. Never ran out. Mayakovsky's would run out once you used them. Mm -hmm. So this one was a step up. It's a little bigger. Surprisingly so, it has less security on it than the actual spell did. Not like an alarm, like a Dean Fogg alarm. There are so few people who would have been able to break into it. It's self-protecting. True. But if I was Dean Fogg, I would have a app on my iPhone (laughs) that went off when someone touched it. For sure. Without further ado, Jason, let's jump into our plot. We're talking a lot about it already. This is so exciting. We open up at the library, where we get another shot of the donut worlds, or the Cheerios, as you like to call them, before zooming into Alice's cell, where Santa laments how humans have ruined his name over time. Meanwhile, Alice dissembles a pipe that seems to carry magical air currents. This is just another minor gripe. I I don't want to be like complaining over an episode that I love. What is this doing in a cell? That's a good question. And I think we had Clatchers ask us that same thing. By the way, we got so many messages from our Clatchers this week. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. (laughs) It was really fun to read your comments and your emails and your voicemail. We did see in episode one that it looked like maybe a letter shot through there. It was something like a piece of paper or something. It's a way for the library to transfer some kind of document. Like a pneumatic tube. Yeah. Does that have to run through patient cells? It's odd. It's odd the location. And so easily breakable plastic that she can just use her strength to kind of, you know, undo the screw and then pull it apart. Now, really hard to get up into it. Santa says he would have never been able to fit his arm. She does cut herself because she has to kind of reach up into it to access the magical current. Yeah. And that was a good way for them to answer that plot hole or possible plot hole. Why didn't Santa do it automatically a while ago? Kind of confusing, though, in the established rules of magic, because we see when magic is released from a container, it just goes out. Like when the battery is broken into and drops, the magic disperses out into the universe. Right. Well, my thoughts were, given enough time, that pipe... This is kind of dark, but almost as if, you know, you leave your car on in a closed garage. The carbon dioxide fills up the garage. I was thinking the pipe would fill up eventually that room with the magic and not just dissipate because we are surrounded by the deadening paint. So if it keeps magic out, you would assume it would keep magic in Mm. if it's already in there. Mm -hmm. So because because it's like a pneumatic tube, the magic is being sucked up along with the air, and that's why it doesn't all release no, I immediately, was thinking, but then eventually it might slow leak into the room? I suppose so, but I was thinking more it was being pushed out. It has to. I don't think it's a sucking tube. I think it's a pushing. Because how else are you going to send documents through? If it's sucking up like 
the banks that suck your... Okay. And, and thus, it kind of like keeps... That's why she has to reach her arm up into there to access the point where it's it's pulling it up. It's a little, little tricky because then she just sort of wriggles her arm around and it's on her hand. I know this isn't the kind of thing most people care about, but when it takes me out of the world for a minute because I have to process, is this making sense? That's a little bit what happened here. They move past that quickly, though. She takes her arm down, and we see what she's planning on doing with the cockroach. She's utilizing it, as you said, almost like a drone camera. She's able to manipulate where it's going and see through its eyes what it can see. Assuming she learned that from the book. Or at least it it was the inspiration behind the idea. Really cool. I wish I could do that. I wanted to see more You could literally be a fly on the wall for your bosses. Be like, they're having a meeting. All right, uh, get the fly, and then you can just literally be a fly on the wall. I wanted to see so much more of that, sneaking around, getting more information about the library. And again, smart woman Alice, the whole mission is let's sneak in here and get some info. She directs the cockroach to the center of the room and then just sits there. Yeah. Well, one, she literally bugged the room. Mm -hmm. I got a kick out of that. I'm a dork. (laughs) But yes, I think she was so enamored with keeping control of the bug and Santa saying, you know, give me some narration. And she's like, shut up, because she has to concentrate so much. But this is a woman who thinks of everything that has been sitting here plotting out this plan. Everyone knows people hate cockroaches. If they see it, the Mm -hmm. first thing they're going to do is step on, at least run under the desk or, or something. It was getting me really aggravated until I realized she had already gotten what she needed. Right. Now, Maybe we could have used this cockroach again. Would have been great. But she saw there's a fireplace in Zelda's office. That's how she's intending on breaking out. And that's where Santa will come into play. So cool. Do you think uh, Santa's going to end up sacrificing his life? I think something's going to happen to him. Yeah. Or maybe he is forced to be recaptured so she can escape. I have no idea. There are so many variables here they're going to have to figure out. Presumably, Zelda's office is locked, kept close watch over. How are they going to get out of their cells? How are they going to get into her office? What do they do once they go up the chimney of this fireplace and they're still just chilling in the library? Yeah. Well, that's the thing about the magicians. It's fun. You Even when you see what their intentions are, you still have questions like, okay, so how are they going to overcome it? And then what? And the more dangers it presents, the more excited and encouraging I am towards Alice's character. I talked about how this is very smart writing last episode, having Santa be the character that forgives Alice and tells us all he knows she's still a good person. Her primary motivation is no longer selfish as it was most of last season to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake, Mm. to be the Niffin Alice who had some really scary facets. She was a dangerous character and then couldn't quite let go of that, didn't know who she was now that she's not a Niffin anymore. This is an Alice whose primary concern is the rest of the group and my friends are in danger. Nobody's listening to that. I need to figure out a way to go help them. And she is willing time and again now to risk whatever it takes to get to them. Well, keep in mind, Alice is on the same journey as Dean Fogg is, and that is to uh, get us, the viewers, forgiveness because she has been so selfish. So this is the exact opposite, just like you said, of what she's been about. It's all been about her. Except she is taking real action to make Mm -hmm. that happen, and we are rooting for her. She's doing something. She's going to risk it. Do you think, and this is just a stupid, fun thought, 
that by the end of the season or by the end of when Santa is going to be out of the storyline, after he departs, Alice will find a new pink journal from Santa. That'd be kind of like a little wink goodbye. Because remember, that's the present that he gave her. Yeah, and I'm assuming he didn't bring it up for no reason, so maybe. Yeah. It'd be fun if she has to get help from some of the sex addict elves. <laughs> and yeah, That would be funny. <laughs> but inside the journal is um, ways that she is or has been a really good person to remind her. Yeah, and she probably needs that. If you need us to write and help you out, <laughs> we're here, man. Pink journals, dude. Unfortunately, that's all we get of Alice for this episode. Now we're going to go over to Fillory and talk about Margot. Wandering around kind of aimlessly, Janet Margot reaches down to a lake for a drink when someone pulls her under the water and into his lair. First of all, I love Margot scenes, always have. And we all know Margot is played by Summer. And we're hoping maybe Summer will come on our podcast. So Clatchers, if you want her on our podcast, write to her on Twitter and Instagram. Let her know. Hey, go to the CKC podcast. We want to see you on there. That'd and be fun. or Alice. I'm such huge fans yeah. of these character arcs this season and the way they're both portraying their characters. It's amazing. Let them know you want them to be on and let them know that Arjun Gupta has already been on and Jade Taylor and they had a great time. That would be fun for this year. It's up to you guys. <laughs> but she wrote on Twitter, Summer that is, at John the McNamara, loves writing lines for Marco so much that this pond better be vodka was added in post-production. So when I watched it the second time, I was paying attention and I realized, oh yeah, you can throw that in post because you didn't see her face. Mm. She was being thrown in. Okay. So that's awesome. And that's a great idea. He was probably in post-production and he was like, oh, you know what? We need something there. I know a perfect Margot saying. Well, even when she's Janet, she's still Margot-esque. Incredible. I love this whole scene. The introduction to Lord Fresh, the way he looks, the way his place down there looks, so dark and creepy, and yet we're not scared because he's a good guy. Well, it reminds me of like uh, Penn Station bathroom. Everything is wet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's speaking in riddles. Not only is this unbelievable and blowing Janet's mind because she doesn't know places like Fillory really exist, creatures like this. But even if it was Margot, you'd still be like, what the fuck are you <laughs> talking about? What is a birthright box? What are you doing here? Remember he grabbed her and she was like, <laughs> I'd be the same way. He tells her he's been guarding this box. She can't touch it without harming herself. And we do see this discussion, her being there, is causing his wards to falter that gets worse and worse throughout the conversation. He goes on to say, The birthright box dictated her absence from the kingdom, her loss of self, and her return. It also predicted she would learn what it is to live and rule alone. Mm. She should come, come back, back and play your destiny. You must find the god who summoned you in the dream. Well, we know who that is. Ember. And thus presumably he can't be dead. She has to find him and interact with him enough in order to accomplish whatever this goal is. And I don't think she can do that with an alarm system echo of Ember. No. So that's going to be her journey. And it's presumably going to be a journey that she has to do alone. We should have known. We were talking last episode about the Ember alarm and well, how can this be? We know Ember's dead, but we've said it time and again in the past. This show has told us gods can't really die. Exactly. And if you go back to Greek mythology, it was the same thing. In the old stories, even when they die or they're gone, they're not really dead. Kronos was either castrated or, according to some stories, chopped into little pieces and then thrown into Tartarus and imprisoned. But he was still there. 
there were numerous other punishments. Atlas was forced to hold up the earth. Characters were turned into plants, animals, and trees. They suffered eternal torment. But again, they were still around. They never went out of existence. Yeah, they became pizza delivery boys. (laughs) Yeah. So he's out there somewhere, Ember and Umber. We had kind of wondered why aren't the old gods taking vengeance upon the humans for killing their children? Maybe this could factor into why. Well, they turned off magic. That was their vengeance. Well, yeah, sure. But Ember could be around there somewhere. I'm thinking that they're in timeout right now up there with their parents and they're like, in a room. You're going to stay in here until you realize what you've done wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they could be suffering. They could be dealing with their powers being drained. There are things that we've seen. They can be affected, even if not killed. But there's a lot to this. Whatever is in this box meant that she had to be away from this kingdom. How does that tie in? She has to come back and claim her destiny. And part of that is to learn to live and rule alone. Hmm. That is a really scary thought. Does that mean something is going to happen to our Elliot? Does it just mean he's going to be possessed most of this season while she's there to deal with it? Is he going to be stuck on Earth even if he comes back to himself? Or is it just the fact that for as long as we've known about Fillory, they had a high king and a high queen, Mm -hmm. as well as these other Earth children that would come and rule up until last season. Now it's a democratically elected one high king, and that's Margot. But it feels like more of an emotional journey that she has to go on that she's going to be isolated from the others. Yeah, I would argue that last season, Margot did rule on her own. She was pretty much by herself most of that time. Mm. That's something we don't know. We don't know if that's a twist of words. Um, I don't think Elliot's gone forever. And we always thought Elliot would be a perfect queen. (laughs) But... It might be that their destinies are lie somewhere else, for sure. And separate, and that's sad. I mean, it's just they live and rule alone. So they're going to mm. be apart for a while. That's the dynamic duo, Elliot and Margot. I have a new dynamic duo. Ever since Life in a Day, it's Quentin and Elliot. Yeah. And <laughs> together in some sort right now. Again, we're going to talk more on that later. Uh, lastly, Lord Fresh says he had hoped he could keep her safe. Since he can't, he's sending her back out and guiding her to walk toward the mountains, but also instructing she should return when the spell is lifted. Yeah, she's got to find out what's in the box. What's in the box? I know the first thing everyone must be thinking, so this isn't an original thought, but in a show that talks so much about Greek mythology, a box that can't be touched right now is somewhat forbidden and dictates destiny must make us think about Pandora's box. I would certainly love to hope this is not equivalent to Pandora's box. A lot of bad shit comes out of there. But if we're running according to truth and history, of course, Pandora's box was opened a long time ago. Thus, all the difficulties humanity has to deal with. And the only thing that was left inside still, when all of the evil escaped, was hope. That's the only thing that keeps humanity going because we still have hope that we will be able to get through even the worst of things. Is that something that's been gifted to Margot that she might need at a critical time? Ooh, I like that. While this is happening, Fen tries to conduct a meeting when Tick interrupts her with a notice of an urgent matter. Though her outward appearance is Janet, they know this is a wiped Margot. They try to inform her of the pressing issue. Ember has returned to Fillory, and since then, their air, which has always been graced with opium... opium. But now it's saturated. For some, it's tolerable. Some get quite giddy, a few succumb to sleep at the most inconvenient times, and then there are those who... Dance! In the nude. 
It sounds lighthearted, but it's actually resulted in a number of deaths, mainly in the falling asleep in the wrong place at the wrong time. Trampled in the middle of the road being the most common. Uh, however, uh, a dance troupe did die of exposure on a glacier, uh, though, uh, by all accounts, quite gracefully. That's so cool because, you know, we think we know Fillory. There's magic. There's whimsy. There used to be a cool map maker. Oh, why'd you bring that up, Jay? Mm-hmm. Um, but now we know there was opium in the air the whole time. Maybe there really isn't magic. You're just high, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we should have really known right off the bat that somebody like Bacchus is behind this. I just didn't put two and two together. Me neither. It's funny that Janet Margot doesn't understand why this is an issue and Fen is really trying to get her to see the importance. As magic is rationed, they don't have enough power to fix this. They hope she can find Ember and convince him to undo it. Thus, Tick maps out the location in Fillory where Ember has been spotted, always at parties. Another hint. The next spot should be the Hair on the Ass Tavern. And here's an all-time Margot quote. Whimsy. I fucking hate it. When they get to the tavern, they find an ongoing party, but soon realize the ember sightings are nothing more than Bacchus wearing horns. Now able to see the real Margot, Fen returns the crown to her and the whole room bows. Such a great Margot moment. Absolutely. And now that she has her wits about her, she's Margot. She's powerful. She's all-knowing. And one of the things we love about the magicians, they got their hands on the pulse of pop culture. And she says, I followed you on Instagram. Everyone did until you got kicked off. (laughs) Bacchus. Bacchus, gotta love it. He, he seems so harmless. But again, if you go back to mythology, he has this darker side, especially when he gets aggravated. As soon as she starts questioning him, he transports her back to Earth. Always hated this about the books. And of course, they have to keep true. But the minute they're back to getting somewhere, bam, they're kicked out of Fillory. I feel bad for Fen. She's got to pick up the crown again and keep going. Not being able to help. So now we know that the Ember Alarm went off because we did have a god there, Bacchus. Now, the alarm stated an uninvited god. Or a hostile one. Or a hostile one. Which is he or both? Is he here just being typical Bacchus, taking advantage of a situation and hitting up all the parties, saturating all the opium? Or is he actually up to something because there is no Ember here? Not that he does much looking out over Fillory, but you know. Well, he would if there was another god there. He'd show up and be like, what? What are you doing here? This is my domain. Because that dictates why he kicks her out. Does he just not want to be bothered with having the party stop or does he have plans? Well, that's the main question, right? What's his deal? Is this him just being selfish, you know, and just wants to party? Or is there something deeper that we're unaware about at this moment? Is Bacchus trying to cause ruckus? (laughs) On Earth at Marina's place, the group ponders what their true identities are and if they would be better. They also wonder why the spell didn't work, even though the amulet kept them alive, and why Marina is helping so much. It's then she triggers that message, do not tamper with my enchantments. And she gets an idea enough to examine Penny. That's what made me think she suspects who these people are. She reveals his tattoo and burns it out, maybe? Magics it out. Either way, reactivating his traveling powers, making you useful, she says, and has him practice. I think it's worth a refresher here. It's been a while since we talked about Penny and his traveling abilities. They are a very special kind of magician. Travelers are, in fact, a magical hybrid of magicians and an unknown creature, something we talk about a lot. We still wonder what that is. And they are exceptionally rare. They are capable of performing their magic naturally, thus abilities independent of the wellspring, And they place great emphasis on protecting their own minds. 
there are no known methods to help them focus their abilities, and those who do not hone their magic can end up making deadly off-jump targets. So they use rigorous practice to build precision and meditation. Even still, some see traveling as a curse and opt to magically tether themselves to Earth, practicing astral projection instead of actually physically traveling, using an anchoring sigil that binds you to Earth. And it's that sigil we see her removing so that he's no longer bound, he is able to travel. And that used to be on his hand, right? It was a smaller tattoo? No, there's actually another one, and that's for something different. Normally, these individuals can only travel alone, but they use another tattoo across their knuckles that enables them to bring others along on their jumps. In this universe, tattoos mean something, and it's kind of cool. I have a tattoo, and I got it when I was a teenager, and I'm like, yeah, the meaning is, you know, life and to fulfill your goals. This is a lot more meaning. My sigil (laughs) binds me to earth, (laughs) man. that's what's up. There's a real meaning for this one. And we saw the whole journey that Penny Forty went through with this and why it was incredibly important for him to do that, how much danger he was in, what a struggle it was for him to decide to do that. Presumably, Penny 23 had gone through something similar in his own life, and that's why he had the sigil. So as Hansel, he has no idea. He's like, all right, cool, man, what's going on? And now he's like jumping around the room practicing. Oh, this is amazing. When Penny 23 comes back, he's probably going to be pissed at Marina for doing that. She's just so nonchalantly, I need to use you. We need to travel. I got to go see Dean Fogg. Take that shit off. This is what I mean. She has no regard for other people. It's how she can use them. And she does go to break bills and she injects Dean Fogg with his own memory potion. Another dick move. Yeah. Right in the neck. (laughs) She's trying to call his bluff to get him to reveal the antidote, but he keeps insisting one does not exist. So without a lot of concern, she says, well, you have a day before it takes effect. You better get to developing one. Meanwhile, on the break bills grounds, Julia is asking Todd for a cheating spell to pass her test. So different from what... Yeah, she's failing everything. Julia would... And I don't know that she would ever do that, even if she was failing. No, I don't think so. Well, then he blurts out to her that Dean Fogg will be leaving. Then Fogg brings Todd along to record his last words of wisdom. My favorite scenes this right here. This is a great scene. Before we get into that, though, he makes a brief important comment that even after all of this, the record is not to include anything about Marina. What does she have over him? She, she makes another comment later on. There's something going on with Marina 23 and Dean Fogg. But here's the good stuff. He starts spewing the truth to everyone he comes across, divulging some really dark things, possible suicide attempts in the past, gambling addiction, alcoholism, 40 timelines, 39 of which were horribly failed, and being raised by a kindly grandmother, yet horrified by any forms of intimacy. He's actually finding the experience cathartic. He secretly knows he's accepting his fate. But back in his office later, when Julia confides her reservations about belonging once more, Fogg gives her a half explanation. He says in a life filled with regrets, I'm not looking for contradiction or pity. It's just a fact I'm suddenly forced to face. But of all my many regrets, the greatest is something I did very recently to some of the most maddeningly millennial students I ever had. He can never correct it, but she might one day. She has no idea what she's capable of. Their lives were were in in grave grave danger. danger. I cast a spell that erased their identities and gave them new ones. And now that same spell has been cast on me. Jesus. I mean, isn't there anything you can do? Well, if I reveal that the spell can be reversed, then someone would reverse the spell on my students, ensuring their deaths. I will not allow that to happen. I have to do this. 
I must accept this. This is a huge Dean Fogg error. I understand why he's doing it, and I appreciate that he really cares for Julia, but this guilt that's driving him causes him to reveal this information. He has taken such care with the battery, the spells he's placed around them to keep them safe because he's determined this will not end like the other 39 times. Mm. He doesn't want them to die to the point that he's willing to have his own memory wiped and go quietly so that no one will be able to figure out that they can do that to the group as well. But this is like planting the seed. You've essentially just told her everything she needs to know to get going on this idea that she's not going to let go of. She is one of these people. Her identity has been erased as well. And yet we see that he is definitely grappling with his own demons, maybe not thinking 100% clearly. At his office later, Etta comes to fix his suit. He explains the shortage of magic is due to unexpected visitors that day that took a huge portion of the daily rations. We see the device that shows the daily magic levels. That's pretty cool. He's got a little... uh... It reminded me of Pirates of the Caribbean, but that compass pointed to what you want most. Mm. It just I don't know why. It just reminded me of that. This was the first big Julia bomb drop. Her being there in his office earlier on took up most of what he got of the magic for the day. When you discuss this with me, it really opened up my mind because I wasn't thinking that way. And then later on in the party, the magic dissipates when he tries when Todd ma- tries to make a drink for her. So you're saying she's absorbing when it? When she or walks some... into yeah. the cottage, it's moments later. He's like, magic isn't supposed to be gone until 11 o'clock. Why did we run out so early? Why did they shut it? So her powers are growing, basically sucking up all of the rations. I like that idea. And if we could follow along with that idea, if she didn't break the battery, one would assume that eventually that spark inside of her would grow again and she'd be able to self-overtake um, Dean Fogg's spell inside of herself, right? Yeah, we know she already had more magic than the average person, so much so that she burst the globe last episode. We're going to come back to that from a Clatcher's comment. But my train of thinking is we know she was a goddess. She can't die because she was a goddess. And it does seem like you're never totally not a goddess anymore. It's just that she had all of her magic and powers depleted from her trying to remake those keys. It seems like you can be built back up. And that's the process that she's going through right now is it's trying to restore her powers up to that level. And thus, anytime she walks into a place where there's magic, she's just soaking it up, re-upping. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Because the story we were told about Prometheus when he did that originally to the keys, he was then taken out while he was at his weakest. This is different when it comes to Julia. She wasn't taken out. She's been granted time. And safety. To regrow that seed. It's just going to take a lot longer because magic is rationed here. So she's just soaking up these little... I like the way your head's at. I was thinking originally during the show that he had to use the magic to thwart his own spell. Remember, it was about to attack them. And he had to tut to uh, make sure that they didn't get hit with projectiles. So that's where my brain went. Well, back to this meeting with Etta, Dean Fogg shows her the graphic novel. Oh, I laughed out loud because (laughs) in our instant coffee episode, you called it... A comic book. And I had to correct you. And then I edited it out for our full review. You called it a comic book a few times and I had to scold you and said, it's a graphic novel. But I I took it out because you can't see my smile. It actually sounded like I was yelling at you. (laughs) So when Dean Fogg says that, I was like, yes! (laughs) 
And he explains he chose this as a guide because the many detailed character backstories meant he could build better glamours. He was looking for a framework. Yeah. I have to create a bunch of personalities. Oh, here's this graphic novel. It's got a lot about these characters. Will you be this person? You be that person. Easier to map it all out. And thus, Katie Sam later finds this book and says, well, this is about all of us. I love the fact that Josh is the one that gets the monster hog. Out of all the characters, you wouldn't think it'd be him. He, ne- he needs a little little ego boost. Yeah. But he says it's actually a problem in real life. <laughs> oh, dear, Josh. When Etta displays the work in progress on the new suit, the dean starts to cry. She says having known Fogg for over 20 years, she believes his bespoke suits and hand-sewn shirts are actually armor to keep the world away and disguise himself. That way no one can see his truly loving heart. I think that speaks volumes that we're not aware of yet. Um, but also it's um, the plan that I'm, I've been droning on and on about is uh, trying to get everyone to forgive him. <laughs> he has a big heart. He's just been hiding it. But that's when the first time I actually realized, yeah, his suits are pretty badass and they always have been. And also this Etta character must be very important to him. Even though we've never met her before and we're only seeing her here briefly, I should have included her at the top in New Faces. She's known him over 20 years. She knows the true fog. And she has his confidence enough that she knows about the glamours, this huge secret he hasn't told anybody that he's just saying, Mom, by the way, I based it off this graphic novel too. Yeah, a lot of trust. So I, I like that, that, this relationship that Dean Fogg doesn't often get to have with a confidant and a trusting friend. After, Julia approaches Fogg again, realizing, as we knew she would, she's one of the students from the story. She wants to undo the spell so they can all fight. But Fogg says while he knows he can't stop her, he can caution her to be more careful now than ever. He also tells her it's been an honor finally getting to be her teacher. He then leaves to find Marina with his new persona as a homeless man, we learn, is in her father's image. So I had a conversation with one of my coworkers, and he interpreted it a little different. There was a comment earlier with Marina when she said, in my life, you had to pay child support. And then in this scene, we see that Dean Fogg is her father. So he had thought that in one of the timelines, he was actually her father. But I read it differently. I read it that she was already sculpting who he's going to be once the potion works in. Oh, of course. You don't just randomly decide, well, I'm going to change you into somebody. Let's choose my dad. She said to him when she first came, and gave him the memory wipe potion. You'll have to assume an identity too, and you're not going to like it. Mm. It's not going to be a good one. So she was planning this all out in her head, and it seems like a way to work through some of these issues she never got to, and also a way to kind of punish Dean Fogg. It seems she doesn't look kindly upon her father, and giving him this role Mm. is a way to get back at him. I felt so bad for him at that point. And she took the money that was in his cup. Yeah. (laughs) Just... Dig it in either, even further. It seems like Dean Fogg knows about this. Maybe he's one of very few people who know the full backstory. And she's also a little resentful of that. He seems to feel very bad about it. So again, how does all this work in together? I don't know. But it's got to be a big portion of why Marina got involved in the first place. Well, back to Julia, who enters the cottage and begs Todd for the info she needs to save Fogg. The magic cuts out, and she tells him she knows the reversal spell would take more power than normal, at least eight people to work it, and Todd worries at what an interruption in the flow of magic could mean during that. As they talk, the glass shatters, 
And he wonders, how can that happen if we don't have magic in here anymore, Mm -hmm. Julia? This leads him to the revelation that Fogg may have actually accomplished the task he's been working on for years, a perpetual battery. So wrong explanation for what's happening in the room at that moment, but right train of thought to find them this battery that Fogg has hidden in his office. That was the first time in my head, and I can't believe I didn't think about this. If there's no magic... How is this spell constantly working? And I'm like, duh, how come I never thought of that? Well, also the other bomb drop about Julia, because this is twice now that she walks into a room, the magic disappears. There's no magic running in there. And in a minute, we're going to see that battery is self-contained. It's not releasing any magic right here to the room (laughs) in the cottage that they could use. It's being directed at this spell. And they're about to find out in a minute that there is something very different happening with Julia. Because as soon as they find that battery, they open it up, they see it's a glowing ball encased in some type of protective covering. As Julia puts her hand close, she is thrown back and knocked out. Not just knocked out. Todd starts freaking out when he realizes he can't find a pulse. Yet she jerks back awake. She can't die. She tries again and again and is repeatedly thrown back to the point that Todd just starts chilling, puts on his Walkman. Walkman. That's awesome. We see him earlier using an old-fashioned typewriter. I was kind of wondering, is this a little Percy Jackson where they're not allowed to have technology or cell phones at Camp Half-Blood because monsters will be able to track them? Like, why are we using such outdated stuff? Oh, I don't know. But anyhow, he just lets her have at it. (laughs) It doesn't seem as though it's working until finally she is able to overload the battery and open it. As it drops, the magic is released, and we see it go straight to our group members, turning them back to themselves. I'm not going to get into that anymore. I've already talked about my source of frustration. It gets us to the plot point we need. The glamours are gone. And over to the last area, the one I want to talk about most. In Greece, the Elliot monster shares that this is the temple of the god they are summoning, Enelaus. He instructs Q to go into the woods and retrieve a young wild pig, which must be caught with human effort. Reluctantly returning with one, he is now ordered to kill it and spill the entrails on the altar, as a god won't come without a sacrifice. Q tries to stick up for himself, to say he's not his playmate and he's not scared anymore, but the monster breaks his Uh, arm. To uh, prove a point. Few things. One, I gotta say once again, Hal Appleman is killing it. I love the way this Elliot monster is acted out. It's so interesting. He's able to portray a form of knowledge and power while at the same time display childlike self-involvement, not looking at a big picture, just what's in front of you and what you want. It's brilliantly done. And the other thing I wanted to point out is I was really touched by the juxtaposition that, that I was realizing between my favorite episode of last year, A Life in the Day. By the way, coming in at a close second, Be the Penny. Agreed. <laughs> how close Q and Elliot got from that point on throughout the season and how much they had more. It was almost as if Margot has a steady ground to be jealous off of. They've shared something way more than Elliot and Margot ever had, which before that episode, I would never say that would ever happen. Mm-hmm. This is so different. It's still, again, only them two looking at them as characters. Obviously, it's not Elliot. And just how different it is well but then the emotion in his voice when it comes back in a moment to actually being quentin you're shouting out hail appleman i'd like to shout out jason ralph i didn't even realize how differently he was playing his glamoured character 
it's not as though it's a whole other persona. And we've said for most of our characters, they did keep something sort of true to who they were. They weren't radically different people. But the minute that they have the glamour removed, Jason Ralph is able to portray. It's like another (laughs) spirit comes into his body. You see the change. And then he knows it's a horrible idea to upset this monster even if he hasn't had an awareness and a conscious underneath, which I think he sort of has, but his interactions with the monster at the castle before all of this, you don't want to go asking about your friends and about these people that he's hunting down. He just can't stop himself from saying, do you think I could have Elliot Mm. back? What's going to happen to Elliot after all of this is over? It's all he can think about. By the way, if you guys want Hal Appleman or Jason on the podcast, let them know. (laughs) But first, as soon as Q complies with the ritual, the god appears. The Elliot monster magically throws him against a tree. He says he wants it back and will just take it. Opening this god's chest and digging around inside of there, but he can't find it, whatever it is. The monster realizes this isn't Enuleus, but his servant in disguise, and deducing why his master sent him though not sharing it with us, he kills him. This is the moment where elsewhere, Julia releases the magic and the spell is undone. The monster immediately realizes the real Quentin is back. And this flippant line, oh, you wanted to play? Sorry, he's too dead. To us, it was obvious that Quentin was going to try to attack the monster. Do you think the monster was so in denial that he thought that Quentin was tutting to mess with? Oh, I don't know. I didn't consider that. Hmm. I think he's totally focused right now on wondering if Quentin, as Quentin, will still play with him. And by the way, what the Elliot monster was doing by cutting off open the chest and trying to find what has been taken from him in his body, we will get back to. Mm -hmm. Right away, Q is looking for information, wondering why he tortured this man to death. What about the real God? The monster says he'll get him and the others and what they took. He doesn't really know what that is. A part of him that knew things. It's not fair. Again, we're going to talk about all that in a minute. He's just thinking Quentin really understands him. Even the true Quentin underneath, who he has liked. When Q risks revealing, he misses his friends. The minute he brings up Elliot and the others, the monster becomes angry and transports the two directly back to the group, saying, I'm not here to play. Ooh, thus starting the next episode. Can't wait. Don't be scary. (laughs) Right away, especially with the magicians, I'm like, how are they going to get around this? Because this feels like a series finale, Mm -hmm. right? I'm off to kill them all. (laughs) So I'm wondering what is going to happen. And a big part of this is going to have to be up to Quentin, right? The one that Mm -hmm. the monster likes, is kind of listening to, started off on a great foot entertaining him with magic card tricks. He is upset with everyone else. That was at that castle that tried to kill him. They tried to kill me after all. Why don't you want to be my friend and play with me? He's going to have to placate him. This is not going to be easy. And could we actually end up losing somebody next episode? We have that and so many more questions. What is Alice's eventual plan to break out of the library and will it work? Well, we know it has something to do with a fireplace. What is a birthright box and what's inside of it? So Ember is alive? Where is he and what's he doing? What is Bacchus's plan? How will Margot find out now that she's back on Earth? What is Marina up to? What is her real agenda? The issues with her father and Dean Fogg. How does that fit together? 
What are the ramifications of reinstating Penny 23's traveling powers? What is going on with Julia and her powers and what happens there next? Will she come save the group? And finally, as we said, who is the monster and what is his missing part? Why did the gods take it? All of that review coming up in the spoiler section. First, to wrap this up, we're going to give our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic ration supplies, less is worse, more is better. I actually like this even better than the first episode, so I'm going to go with 9.0. I want to go higher, but I'm just I'm showing a lot of restraint. I too definitely liked it better, but I want to leave space to grow, so much like you, I'm going to go up to a 9.1. As per usual, pretty close to our IMDb ratings. And now let's move on to our MVM. And this week, like every week, via Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clatchers, who is your MVM? And this week, our four characters are Dean Fogg, Julia, Margot, and Alice. Coming in fourth place with just 2% is Alice. Oh, oh no. I thought she uh, was doing pretty good here. Well, as a whole, in this episode, she did accomplish a lot, but there's for sure a lot more there's to so come. There's so much more to come, and it was a brief time spent with her. Coming in at third with 9% is Margot. You know, I thought that would be a little higher because her scenes were so memorable. She had the best lines. They were so impactful and her just having to confidently continue to stride forward amidst what must be such confusion, so overwhelming. She's in this world she had no idea existed with magic and creatures. This is all crazy. Everyone's calling her High King. She's pulled into an underwater lair Mm -hmm. and thrown tons of craziness about a birthright box and finding Ember. Then she's brought to the castle where Fen tasks her with this job that they have to do. <laughs> she gets this amazing, powerful moment where she is the first to come back to herself and the whole room bows. It's High King Margot back. <laughs> I suppose, though, ending on that last note where Bacchus kicks her out of Fillory kind of ruins it a little bit. Yeah, maybe if it ended with her saying, what are you doing here, Bacchus? And then that's Yeah, them it. all bowing and her just yeah. confronting him. That would be sick. Maybe the biggest shocker for me, though, coming in second place with only 11% is Dean Fogg. Yeah, you had said last episode in our spoiler section that you believe this will be Dean Fogg's episode. And it was in many factors. But I guess in the end, he had to acquiesce to what Marina did to him. So he didn't come out on top. And he failed with Julia. Despite his warnings, she still wound up doing it. Everything he was trying so hard to do and everything he sacrificed for wound up coming to the end he was so worried about. And coming in at first place by 78%. Wow. Julia. And I don't know I've ever disagreed with an MVM more. This coming from someone who gave it to Julia many times last season. And in fact, she was my season three MVM. You know what, though? You say this and you're upset with her because she ignored Dean Fogg's warnings, which we've talked about already. But... Based off of our rules from last episode, who pushed the storyline ahead the most? That would be Julia. She pushed it forward plot-wise, but through an action I feel, even as not Julia, Julia was contradictory to her character. And I, I really don't like that. She still is a very intelligent, powerful woman yeah. who, does, lost. who does care about this group and is told this will put them in danger. She is lost. She wants the truth. And she says we can fight. It's just not the way I see her going about it. I think they had to get to it quickly. Mm. I'm sure she is going to come in and help. And maybe even next episode, 
I'll be excited and reading it for Julia. I just can't give it here. I can definitely understand, though. Why you would vote for her. Why you would vote for, for her. Sure. Seeing her power, knowing that it's not gone and she can't die. Yeah. And awesome. that she is about to figure this all out. Yeah, I get the hype. <laughs> I want to thank our Clatchers. We got a lot of votes this week. Keep them coming. This is so fun. Now it's up to you. Who is your MVM? I'm going to go with Julia. <laughs> well, in a complete 180 from my lingering frustrations last episode, I'm going to give it to Dean Fogg. Ultimately, his stuff did fail, but it's also that failure that kept the story moving forward as well. We got to see this much deeper level, have an understanding of him and an empathy for him. We always sensed. We always wanted more of that. I love this character. I love Rick Worthy. I think he's killing it. Props to him. Who knows when I'll be able to give it to Dean Fogg like again, to, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'd really love to have him on the podcast. Well, I have to copy you. Dean Fogg for me. Here's the thing. I understand that he did not overcome anything or progress the storyline in any way. But I've been waiting. If you listen to any of our old podcasts, I always said I want more Dean Fogg. I've been waiting for a scene like we had. The montage where Dean Fogg punches the husband of um, a woman that he once slept with. Tells a drinking partner that he only drank with twice. That he's the best drinking partner he ever had. There's so many cries. Uh, There's so many good moments. He was strong enough and so unselfish with what's going on. And ready to just lose his memory to save his crew. I have to give it to Dean Fogg. Well, and that is propelling the story forward. And he did accomplish a lot personally as well. You know... This was therapy. So now we move on to our Clatcher's comments. We have quite a bit. Thank you so much for writing in and calling in. And after that, we're going to give you a deep character review on Dean Fogg. Amir says, I was happy to see a lot of questions answered this episode. Definitely a favorite. I liked seeing my prediction about Julia still being a goddess-like being in terms of how it's hard for her to die come true. Amir, I think you're right. A lot of questions were answered. And that's something that the magicians are really good at. They answer so many, but at the same time, give you new ones. Roll out 50 more (laughs) on top of that. That's why I'm so excited to do our speculation. As you said, we're saving that for the spoiler section, just in case we reveal things. But we'll do that first before we move into info about next episode and true spoilers. That way, if you want to dip your toe in, you can be a part of that speculation too. Brian says, that poor innocent cockroach. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it mattered, but it was good to see that Dean Fogg was willing to sacrifice himself. Yes. Had to give it to Julia, though. There's tenacity, then there's Julia. Brian, you're right. And I think Christina is just being so mean to Julia. Yeah, here we go again. (laughs) I don't don't know if you guys noticed that. Um, I always try to put Christina on tilt because she has an opinion and I just go with whatever everyone else thinks. You always try to make people (laughs) like you more. You're with me the whole time and then you see Clatcher's writing and Katie, Katie, Katie. You're like, oh yeah, you know what? Katie was really cool. I think you're being a hater. I hate you. (laughs) Meg wrote, from hashtag save Quinn to hashtag save all the magicians. Fabulous episode. Can't wait to watch it again. Maybe hashtag save Elliot is better. Yeah, I'm (laughs) so worried now that Quentin has specifically brought up Elliot and the monsters inhabiting him. I mean, just please, for the love, don't take away Elliot. (laughs) Brian S. wrote, God, this season is so good. And please say all of those O's. (laughs) Also, so many quotable lines. I agree, Brian. There's so many. Okay, Shape of Water. Oh, yes, that's right. There's so many we even forgot about. Perfect. Larissa says, quote, could I maybe have Elliot back? 
Got me right in the feels. A plus line delivery. Totally agree. One of my biggest questions right now is what happened in the day before Fog's identity spell kicked in for our crew? And Melly says I have the same question. I thought the spell had kicked in instantly. That's a good question. But the we real- see time was being spent first a little bit in fillery when they turned the water back on and then they were going to set. Maybe they just were there longer. Setting it up, setting some, it all up. Yeah. Telling Fen to what's going on. Maybe. I mean, my real question is if a tree falls in the forest and you don't remember it, did it really fall? <laughs> Stupid. Sorry. Melly wrote, I'm really curious about Marina's motives. By the way, she said very ironically, she's a good person who helps others. It is pretty obvious her motives are selfish, but why? Hmm. Yeah, I think this this all comes down to her father here. We just don't know what that's about yet. Well, yeah, when it comes to Dean Fogg, for sure. But also, we know that she's a main hedge witch who always had their own things going on. even original Marina had a ton of other issues. And on Facebook, Ashley wrote to us and said, Season MVM Julia with the genius battery depletion. Yeah, there's another reason why you should like Julia, Christina. Diana also wrote in about Julia. She actually had two great points. After our last podcast, she picked up on our question about the reference to breaking the globe to tell us that in the first episode, Dean Fogg tells Quentin that's how they find magicians, by these special globes. He has about a dozen of them. So that's the globe that she broke, of course. That makes so much sense. Thank you. I love when our Clatchers pick up on these things that we've missed and then it all kind of adds up for us. She also said she was re-watching season one, waiting for the start of this season. At the point where Alice and Quentin are trying to get into the physical kid's cottage, Alice uses the light-bending magic, phosphoromancy, to look through the keyhole. And the shape that you see on the screen is exactly the same as the keyhole in the stars that the hedge witches have tattooed. Mm. So is this a form of that kind of magic, some way to utilize things like phosphoromancy? We just saw... Somebody like Penny's tattoos are linked to his traveling magic in a way. So that would be really cool. I love that theory. Thank you to Clay and Megan, who wrote in to us with their messages, as well as Jennifer, who found the Magician's Podcast during the break, but sadly because Spotify didn't notify her sooner. Mm. So sorry about that. I hope that's not happening to others. Todd wrote in with a good question that has come up a couple times, and I don't have the answer to it. Wait, is that Todd? Todd? Whoa. I think he wrote last season because I said the same thing. Is that Traumeister Todd? He says, what did Dean Fogg mean when he said he finally got to be Julia's teacher? Wasn't he her teacher around 39 times? I could have sworn it was only in the 40th timeline she didn't get into break bills. Finally getting to be your teacher has been an honor. That's a good question. And we discussed it and we do not know. He also says, why did he say he cast the memory spell on his students because they were in danger? He clearly meant to cast the spell before he could have had any idea they were in danger. You're right, because they only knew after they got there and it was told to them. About the monster. Yeah. Unless he did know. Hmm. I, it's, it doesn't really make sense. There are a lot of things that still have to be slotted into place for us, but maybe it will later. Yeah, one could say it's very foggy. <laughs> And lastly here, Josh wrote in to say he feels he has no clue where this season's going or how the magicians could possibly defeat a monster even the gods fear. 
This also seems to be the biggest obstacle they've faced, so do you think it would be too easy if all the magicians escape this season with their lives? If someone dies, in a more final way than we've seen so far, who would be your guess? Yeah, we were just saying how worried we are about that. For right now, I am clearly thinking it's going to be someone or multiple someones from the 23 timeline. So Marina, Penny 23, I think... We'll get a little more time with them, but eventually it's sort of destined for them to not be in this timeline anymore. As far as the main characters, our main group, maybe it would be a little easy, but I don't think they're going to kill any of them off. I was very surprised about Penny last time, though he's not gone gone, so I guess that's a bit different. I think if we see something like that, it won't be till towards the end of the season. He also said there's the Penny in Hell, Penny 40. Is he going to be a big part of this season? I think we kind of hit on that. But so glad that you're enjoying the podcast and everybody else who wrote in, including some new listeners. It's great to have you on board. And we have some more Clatcher's comments, but it's more in regards to the monster. So we'll touch upon that when we go into Elliot. But we did get our first The Magicians CKC voicemail. And if you guys want to join in, it's really easy. Just call in CKC.6606. That's 252 352- 368-6606. Hey guys, it's Brian. Trom Brian, not the other Brian. I was calling in to say that the reason Marina might have access to magic isn't because she's found the leak or something or that fog is following it to her, but because magic is wild and no one can actually control it. Maybe magic just decided that, yeah, we'll let a little bit of it flow through the library, but we're going to let a little bit more just you know, be out there. Because I don't think that the library has complete control of the matter through their siphon. Because why would something human-made be able to control something that literally has to be turned off by the god? I just want to know you guys' thoughts. Thanks. That's Brian with the Y. So he's saying it's Brian, not the other Brian, because we're teasing one of our OG Clatchers, who's Brian a Patreon S. member, Brian <laughs> S., because he always calls in. So thank you, Brian, not Brian. But Brian with a Y for calling in. Bry I love guy. Your, <laughs> I love your question. So let's see. I like the idea of magic being more wild and not completely in anyone's control. And we've seen there are so many of these other things happening. Loopholes. Me too. I magic mean, batteries going on. It would feel too defeatist if the library or even the gods just had complete control over this and could decide. That's what we were railing against all of last season. Yeah. So it's. It's definitely fun to think about it that way. Well, we did learn last season from one of our main gods. Hades spoke to our Penny, saying that magic's been turned off before and humans always find a way to get it back on. It's just a way we play games with you guys. They tend to regain control momentarily, but magic is its own entity. It's wild. It's out there. And we will find a way. I like that, Brian. Moving on to our character review. This time, no surprise, it's Dean Fogg. We learned a lot about him this episode. Some more background that we've touched upon briefly, such as we know his discipline is knowledge. But he is a talented magician and an efficient man who knows how to intervene in the direst of situations, always taking into account the preservation of his students. It's on display here. While he has great insight and is often sought for help, some look down on him, including Mayakovsky. And in the books, he has a reputation for being cowardly and selfish. He has always been self-sufficient, though, so much 
that he effectively taught himself to perform magic at the age of four. In his later years, he attended Breakbills, where he was sorted into the knowledge discipline. Upon completing his studies, he became an alumni, receiving a key should he ever wish to visit the school's campus. However, afterward, he was approached for the possibility of becoming the school's dean. We've seen he went through a lot of difficulties through the 39 alternate timelines. During her crusade to stop her brother, Jane Chatwin approached Dean Fogg to request his help. During this time, she made a number of alterations to reality by using her horomancy to reset the timeline when the students failed. We also learned through those things, though, about Dean Fogg's abilities. He has accumulated knowledge and skill over the years to the level that he is considered a master magician. And we hear reference about that. When Zelda is talking to Alice, she's saying you could become a master magician on a level higher than other people that you know. He was notably able to briefly spar one-on-one with the Beast. I know it was a brief amount of time, but this shows his level of magic. They started out by showing us he was unaffected by the paralyzing spell that was put on the entire class when the Beast came in, and he was able to retain his memories from previous timelines. Only the Beast was able to do that. We see this season he's personally invented and cultivated the potion capable of completely rewriting the memories of individuals down to their personalities. One that was actually able to affect even a former goddess. We're just thinking about that on the level he's operating and a perpetual battery that we didn't know existed that could only be undone by a godlike being. He has a gifted intellect and he can speak and read in a multitude of languages, including some that are currently dead or archaic ones. Well, that's a result of being able to do it over and over and over again while retaining the memory, right? I mean, he already was a badass. Four years old, he was doing magic. So you have that. But then also you could just go through 40 lifetimes, well, 40 iterations and try again and try again and try again. Yeah, I think it's easy, especially in an episode like this where we do get empathy and it's so humanizing for Dean Fogg. It helps us to feel for him, but also reminds us that he is flawed and he does have issues, kind of puts the powers on the back burner. So it's a nice reminder that, yeah, he is a master level magician. He is capable of some crazy magic, some crazy shit that we haven't seen before. So I thought this was a really opportune time to highlight Dean Fogg. We've seen his weaknesses. I mean, we've seen him in 23. He's an alcoholic. We've seen him in our timeline when he pretty much gave up. He didn't have sight at all. And he went back to the bottle. And even in, even when he's about to lose his memory, he says, I'm a high-functioning alcoholic. <laughs> so that's going to do it for the official character review. We have a little more of a deep dive in our speculation here. We are bridging the spoilers. We want to talk about our thoughts on who the Elliot monster could be. What is the true identity? So we actually have no knowledge, and we might be so wrong that we'll be embarrassed in a couple of weeks listening to this podcast, but we have an idea of who the Elliot monster is. If you're afraid that we might actually have figured it out, you can consider this the spoiler section, and you can leave now. Thank you for listening, and Mm -hmm. we'll see you next week. But if you want to have some fun with us, let's find out who we think this monster, who the gods the top gods are afraid of. Well, we said on Twitter already we believed it was a titan. Jennifer wrote in to say she's seen a few theories about the Elliot monster being either a god or a titan. No, bullshit. It was only us. (laughs) (laughs) She says, the only thing holding me back from completely accepting those theories is that last season, the monster was described as being created by the gods. It could be that they created who the monster is now by taking away pieces of him. But that seems a little forced to me. 
yet I can't think of any other explanation, and we'll be going with the assumption he is actually a god or titan. So before we approach this, I do think that's what they mean by created. If you look back into the ancient stories, the Greek mythology we were talking about, even gods and titans were punished by gods and suffered these horrible fates or were altered or changed into something else. It's something that we actually have background on. So I do think that that works. And by taking away something of him, imprisoning him, changing him, you turn him from the person he used to be into this monster that's only left with Mm. these qualities. So I think that still could work. Yeah, it's a play on words. We were told last season that this monster was a mistake that the gods created. It could be a play on words. They created this monster out of someone who was their parents who would be a titan, by taking away something from them and turning them into this monster. So Jennifer's guess at the identity is Typhon, son of Gia, the Earth, and Tartarus, the bottomless pit. He's known as the father of monsters, which just fits so well thematically. He was greatly feared by the Olympian gods, so much so, in fact, that at one point the Olympians hid from him in their animal forms. Bacchus is pretending to be a ram in the form of Ember, so that fits, kind of. After a few battles, Zeus finally defeated Typhon. Yeah, I remember this story. Actually, (laughs) Zeus was first horribly wounded, had all of his tendons ripped out of his body. She says he was imprisoned in Tartarus, and they placed Mount Etna above that. This fits with the Elliot monster being imprisoned in Castle Blackspire. Some versions of this story include Zeus dismembering Typhon to bury his parts under all of Sicily which matches the idea that the gods all took something from him. Some versions even include Zeus, Athena, and Bacchus being particular enemies to him as they were the only three to stand up to him. That's an amazing idea. And I did go through a couple of different figures from our mythology before I came back around to this one. I hadn't considered Typhon, but he was the one they were all really scared of. He was more powerful than all of them, and they really didn't know how they were going to defeat him. Zeus himself had to lead the charge because the other gods ran away. (laughs) They didn't want to have to deal with it. And while they refer to a lot of those creations, so children of Gia, Tartarus, these very scary beings as being monsters, that's the one that's really often referred to as a monster. I never thought about that, but that fits very nicely. I like it, Jennifer. I had actually thought about Iapetus, who is father to Prometheus. And there are some stories where Iapetus loses his memory and goes from being a very scary titan to something else. But I don't know if they're true or they're based on history and I don't know a lot about it. So I moved on. You and I both landed on our theory, which is actually Prometheus. Yeah. And we've seen him before. And it makes sense. We saw that he lost his power creating the keys. And then in the storyline, he was overtaken in his weaknesses. But we know now that gods can't be killed. So he could be back. And in mythology, he was overtaken and imprisoned for a very long time, possibly forever, according to some stories. Let's go back a bit, though. For those of you who aren't familiar or didn't listen to us talk a little about it last season, Prometheus is the god of forethought. So Iapetus had several children, this being one of them. He's the most famous, namely because he supposedly created man from clay. He sculpted them, decided that they would be similar to the gods. The gods didn't worry about them much to begin with. They were small, they were weak, they regarded them as cockroaches, in Hmm. fact. 
long as they were just scurrying about doing their thing, they didn't have to worry about them. Prometheus, though, wanted them to be more civilized. Thus, he decided to give them fire, enabling progress and civilization. Well, Zeus was not happy about this. He sentenced Prometheus to eternal torment. He was chained to a rock where each day an eagle, the emblem of Zeus, was sent to peck out and eat his liver. Why the liver? Well, that was thought to be the seat of human emotion. Now, think about Monster Elliot and what he did to what he assumed was Anuleus. He went right... The inside of the body, rooting around. Where's the liver? Is it in there? Hmm. Not only that, Prometheus was known for having established the form of animal sacrifice practiced in Greek religion. Well, what do we see happening here? You have to sacrifice an animal to call the gods. But get this, it's not all. Zeus having not been satisfied with that, okay? So that wasn't enough of a punishment supposedly sent the first woman to earth who would be, quote, a deadly race to live amongst men and bring trouble. I I didn't say that. He (laughs) did. The woman's name was Pandora. She was sent to Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus, who unfortunately was the god of afterthought. So even though Prometheus tried to warn him, Zeus is out to get us. If you get sent anything, don't accept any gifts. Forethought and afterthought. Yeah, so unfortunately, Epimetheus was fooled, so taken in by the beautiful Pandora that he let her in, accepted the gift, and she opened the box. Was Prometheus ever, uh, his memory, was that ever taken away? Not from the stories I've read, Okay. but they kept trying to take an awful lot away from him. They didn't want humanity to exist. At one point, Zeus sent a flood very similar to all the other flood stories we hear, to wipe out and start over. This human race thing is not working. When Prometheus is punished, he's sent away, sentenced to this eternal torment where a part of himself is taken out every single day. And not only that, but the part thought to symbolize human emotion. You care too much about these humans. You have too much humanity in yourself. Did removing that portion of him remove the humanity from Prometheus? Does he need it back in order to be more human? I wonder, and it would make sense. We're wondering how next episode the crew will get away. Maybe it won't be revealed that fast, but we know Prometheus loved the humans. He fought for the humans. He sacrificed himself for the humans making those keys. If any part of that comes back, even a memory or something, we can get the monster on our side. He does truly love humans. So even after they've removed this portion, he's not able to be good and decent and human anymore. He's half a monster. The base of him just wants somebody to play with him. He is all-consuming need. He is now basically the worst of humans, which is what we said about the monster when we first met it. And the gods are still afraid of him because he still has the power to destroy them all. And now it will be without thought. Because he's just consuming. So he'll just kill him. That is terrifying. <laughs> they, they made a worse They realized monster. later. They made a mistake. We made a mistake. Which is what they said. We created in a last monster. season. So that's what we're going with. We may be way off, but it's really fun to think about. And if we're right, I really hope that our writers of The Magicians first listen to this, 
laugh, either laugh at us and go, you're so wrong, mm-hmm. or go, so oh my God, you guys got it, and come on to the podcast. It'll be a fun interview. I also think this would be clever because we're all trying to think of something new. Who else could it be? Because we've seen Prometheus. We think his story is done. And so we disregard what might fit better than anything else. That's smart of yeah. a writer to do. Or maybe we're just sucking up so much opium air that we're so wrong. It's all your fault, Bacchus. I promise we're done now. That concludes the speculation and it's just going to take us into spoilers for next episode. This podcast was a little long, but we had a lot of fun. If you guys enjoy what you hear, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Let the rest of the world know that we're out there. And also, don't forget, if you really love what you're listening to, check us out on Patreon. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on About Patreon. You'll see all the past episodes we've done. Every month, we give you three podcasts, depending on your tiers. We do a coffee break episode. We do a bonus episode. And we do a movie review. And don't forget, you're not just getting more content. You're helping Christina and myself out with a little bit of money to pay for the bandwidth costs and hopefully make this our living. That would be a dream come true. And new homework assignment, tell two friends about the magicians and about the podcast. On to upcoming spoilers. For the next episode, episode three, the title will be The Bad News Bear. We know it was written by David Reed and directed by Ellie Smolkin. The synopsis says Katie gets a puppy. Quentin meets a snake. Hmm. These weird synopses, I'm not sure, but we do see from the preview Elliot Monster has the group in a room. Mm. All together, he's confronting each one of them. He says, you tried to kill me. You were all a part of it. It actually appears as though he's going to kill them one at a time. And of course, you have Margot there as well, who steps in hoping that the real Elliot is still inside of there somewhere, that she's able to kind of tap into that. But based on the conversation we just saw Quentin have with him, I don't feel anywhere near hopeful about that. I think he has to address the monster perhaps if they could get a better idea of who this is, his motivations. Quentin was also trying to figure that out. What do the gods take from you? What do they owe you? Maybe then they could approach from that angle. Yeah. I don't know how they're all going to do that under the gun in a room, but... (laughs) You never know. They might move past that really quick, knowing the magicians. I'm confused. We have the bad news bear. So we have a bear. Then we have Katie gets a puppy. We have a puppy. And Quentin meets a snake. So the bear right away, and this is probably wrong, I'm thinking... Mayakovsky. But you're always thinking Mayakovsky. (laughs) The puppy. I'm wondering what that means. I think while he's in the room going through each one of them, that's either going to be symbolic or Mm. emblematic or... I don't know, but I think a large focus of the episode is going to be on that. I hope so. This is going to be exciting. Clatchers, thank you so much for being a part of this storyline and this podcast. Remember, rate and review. Show your love like you have been doing. Thank you so much. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.